Pastor Craig uh, taught a wonderful Bible study um, earlier, and I was privileged to listen in on it. And he told the story of the Good Samaritan. He was asking his class uh, who they didn't like, who among them, you know. And there are people we don't want to say that we have enemies or we don't like people, but there are certain people we don't like. So I guess I would like to open this message because I think uh, it's applicable and ask you who your enemy is. You know, some of us think uh, a member of our family is our enemy. Some of us think the opposite political party is our enemy. You might say, well, the devil's my enemy. Can I just be honest with you? The devil doesn't know your name. He's not omniscient. And, you know, there's nobody in this room that's important enough for the devil to know your name. So he's not really your enemy. Uh, I'm not saying that there's not evil in the world. and The devil's not ultimately behind it, that there aren't demonic powers and all of this other stuff. But I'm going to tell you who your enemy is, every single person in this room. Death. Death is your enemy. There are people like, no, death is a friend. Death is not a friend. Death is your enemy. And you and I need some way to overcome that enemy. And that is what Passover is about. Jesus is our Passover lamb. The Passover, which will be celebrated next week, uh, Friday, uh, starting Thursday evening, um, and in fact, this is why Jesus was crucified on Good Friday, um, because that was the day that the Passover lamb was sacrificed. Jesus and his disciples observed a very special Passover uh, the night before on Thursday night, and Jesus presented himself as the, the one who would bring about a new covenant between human beings and God. Uh, he he lifted the cup that they would typically drink at Passover, and he said, this cup is the new covenant established in my blood, not established in the blood of some animal, but established in my blood. And then he, he lifted the bread prior to that, and he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Now, we're going to observe uh, what we call the Lord's Supper, or sometimes it is called communion, at the conclusion of my talk today. And it is a way for us to remember what Jesus did when he converted the Passover meal to the Lord's Supper. Now, I'm not saying that uh, the Passover meal uh, should no longer be celebrated or observed, not at all. But I am saying that for the Christian, the meal that we share together, uh, at least what we call a meal, is the Lord's Supper, and it was established at that Passover table. Now, at one point in the Scripture, the Apostle Paul is talking about actually church discipline, and he said, you need to get rid of the leaven in your lives. Well, the Israelites were, uh, because uh, following Passover was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they were told to get rid of all the leaven. Well, what is leaven? Leaven is yeast. They were told to get rid of all the yeast in their houses. And that was because the Israelites, in their Passover meal, that night, uh, as they were delivered from Egyptian slavery, ate unleavened bread. They didn't have time for their bread to rise. God delivered them immediately. He delivered them suddenly. When God acts, he acts. You and I need to be ready. When Jesus comes back, it will be like lightning that will be seen from one end of the sky to the other, and there will be no more chances. You have a chance right now. If you've been toying with whether you should really give your life to Jesus, whether you should really have faith, let me just, in the strongest words, encourage you, challenge you. Give your life to Jesus now. You don't know how long you have. Your enemy is death. And unless Jesus returns, 
every single person in this room will face that enemy. Now, what will that meeting be like? Now, I'm not saying death is like the death angel, which was uh, what took the life of the firstborn in Egypt, and I'm going to get into the details of that briefly in just a moment. But I am saying that I am personifying death as a metaphor and saying, what does that enemy look like? Well, if you come to know Jesus, you have defense against that. And uh, what the Israelites did, what they were told to do, is to slaughter a lamb. They were to eat the, the meat of the lamb, but they were to take the blood of the lamb, and they were to take a, a branch of hyssop, which is kind of a, a, a plant, and they were to dip it in the blood, and they were to paint the doorposts and the lintel with the lamb's blood. And then the death angel who was coming into Egypt to take the life of every single firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh on the throne to the firstborn of every slave, unless they put their faith in God and were obedient because of that faith and put that blood on the doorposts and the lintel, and then the death angel would pass over their home. Hence the term Passover so to jump to the end of the message, unless the blood of the Lamb, Jesus, is on the doorpost and the lintel of your heart, then death is going to take you and it will be a permanent state. We call that permanent state hell, separation from God. But Jesus is our Passover Lamb, those of us who have called upon Jesus to be Lord. For the last couple of weeks, um, I have been... Uh, preaching from the holy history of Israel, helping us to understand the events that took place leading up to Passover. So when the family of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, the, the family of Israel was only 70 people, they were taken into Egypt as friends. They were placed in the, the fat of the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they were treated with great privilege. So the Egyptian emperor, they called him the Pharaoh, the Egyptian king and the Egyptian government was favorable to them because God had favored Joseph. And although Joseph went through many trials, he placed him in a favored position and he became second in command in Egypt. And, you know, as I've considered that story and, and pondered it, um, it really reminds me of the United States and the favored status that Christians once, in, once enjoyed in this country. But see, what we find at the beginning of the book of Exodus is the statement, then a Pharaoh arose who knew not Joseph. So suddenly there was a, a king and there was a government that no longer favored the Israelites. And we've come to that time, friends. That's where we are in this country. Christians are no longer in a favored state. In fact, we have fallen far out of favor. But it just reminds me that we need to stop treating the government as though it were our God. We need to stop relying upon the government and depending on the government. In fact, we need to even stop trusting the government. We need to trust Almighty God. Amen? And as, you know, the government operates in accordance with what he has chosen, then it is there to protect us. Um, it is not there to provide us with rights or even to provide us with, with 
you know, the ability to, to get through life. You and I are supposed to be providing for ourselves. We trust God and we look to him to give us something that uh, will enable us to create wealth, as we spoke of about a month ago when I talked about finances, when I talked about uh, the, the financial life. You have been given the power to create wealth, but you have to work in order to do that, right? So um, that's just kind of a reminder to me in an application. So after this family of Israel, uh, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, had been in the land of Egypt for some time, this new Pharaoh arose. And really what we find in history is it's a new, uh, a new regime that came to power, and they no longer favored the Israelites. There are interpreters who believe that the Pharaohs who were in power when Joseph came to Egypt um, were ethnically similar to the Hebrews. Um, the, the Hebrews, the, the Hapiru, we think, were ethnically similar to, perhaps even related in some way, uh, to the what are known as the Hyksos pharaohs. But then those pharaohs, the Hyksos pharaohs, were deposed, and a new regime came to power, and they were very much separated from the Hebrews. Further, the text tells us very clearly that they were intimidated by this growing family within their midst. So it was a nation within the nation of Egypt, and they were concerned, that is, the Egyptians were concerned, Pharaoh was concerned, that these people would ultimately turn against them, and if Egypt was invaded, then their, you know, the, this family that had now become its own nation would join with the invading nation and take over Egypt. So their solution to that, or Pharaoh's solution to that, was to make them slaves. Well, you know, interestingly enough, the Hebrews just continued to stay in Egypt and didn't seem to have a great problem with that. Okay, so we're slaves. We're still provided for. We still have food. Um, you know, we're, we're still relatively safe. But things got worse and worse and worse, and they began crying out to God. And so God prepared another man that he would use to save them, and this man's name was Moses. Um, by the time Moses came along, uh, the Pharaoh had commanded that every male child be murdered, be killed, and that um, only the female babies would be permitted to live. And so Moses' mother and his sister were very concerned about him, so they made a little boat of reeds and covered it in pitch and, and put it in the Nile River. And Moses was discovered by the daughter of Pharaoh, and she took him out of the water. And she adopted him as her own child, and he grew up in Pharaoh's court. Here is another example of God providentially positioning his man. But then Moses decided to take up the, uh, the power or the authority uh, that God was going to give him, and he decided to take it up in his own hand. And he saw an Egyptian slave master beating a fellow Hebrew. And the scripture says he looked this way and that, and then he killed the Egyptian. So Pharaoh... Uh, finds out about this, and Moses says, hey, you know, this has been discovered, and he leaves the land of Egypt. And he ends up in the, in the Sinai Desert, and he is there for 40 years caring for someone else's sheep. Perhaps Moses thought, you know what? I, my position in Pharaoh's court was nothing, and, you know, it is very likely that he simply gave up the hope that he would ever be a prince of Egypt or be any sort of deliverer for uh, his people. But God had other plans. God had prepared Moses. And so um, eighty years uh, at 80 years of age, God appeared to Moses in the burning bush 
spoke to him and sent him back to Egypt. Now, initially, Moses didn't want to do this. He said, I can't speak. Uh, I, you know, I'm just not an, uh, the, the type of person that can do this. And God said, no, you know, who gave man his mouth? Who gave man his ear? It, it is I, the Lord, I will be with you. Well, long story short, uh, Moses did go back to Egypt. Now, a slave was not going to be able to walk into Pharaoh's court and start talking to him. Moses had been raised probably as the brother of this very Pharaoh who we think was Ramses. And so Moses literally could walk into the presence of this Pharaoh and have a conversation because he wasn't some normal slave. The scripture says, as we look at the account in Exodus, that Moses was highly regarded by the people of Egypt. See, even though he had run out of Egypt 40 years before, they still regarded him very, very highly. So he comes into the presence of the Pharaoh, and he says, I want you to let my people go. Initially, it's a, it's a small request. I want you to let them go into the wilderness to sacrifice to God, and they'll be there for three days. And Pharaoh refuses. He says, who is, who is this God you're referring to? And, of course, Moses didn't refer to him as God, the word God. Uh, the Hebrew word for God is El or Elohim. He referred to God's name. And Moses was the one to whom God revealed his name for the first time in history. God's name was Yahweh. God's name is Yahweh. At least that's the Hebrew designation. We believe it's pronounced that way, right? And it means the I am, the self-existent one. This is God who said, I am that I am. I will be what I will be. He is the ground of all being. He is the essence of existence. If there was no God, there would be nothing at all. You are here. You exist because God exists. You exist because God chose to bring you into existence. That's the God we're dealing with. Well, Pharaoh was not willing to even recognize that this God, who is the ground of existence, existed. He says, who is this God? I don't know who this is, and I'm not letting you go. So uh, if you're following along in either the YouVersion app or in your bulletin, uh, the first point in your outline is God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt, but this required Ten plagues, the ten plagues. Listen to this from Exodus 9.14. This is Moses addressing Pharaoh. And God is speaking through Moses. Moses is speaking as a prophet for God to Pharaoh. For this time I am going to send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. This is what God says. I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name throughout the earth. So God had a purpose to reveal himself through these ten plagues to the Egyptians to demonstrate his power, to demonstrate his glory. And, of course, that's why we still preach this and we still teach this. Um, in Exodus 10, 1 and 2, God says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, so that I may perform signs of mine among them. These signs, of course, are the plagues we're referring to. And that you may, in the presence of your son and of your grandson, uh, tell how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, so that you may know that I am the Lord, so that you know, may know that I am the I am. So this is the purpose. Okay? So these ten plagues were judgment upon Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. That's number two in your outline. Um, Exodus 12, 12, the second half says, Against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. I am the I am. 
So they are a judgment on the gods of Egypt. Well, we would say the gods of Egypt were, were idols, right? They, they didn't really exist. And yet the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament that these idols that are worshipped are actually demons. And so it is very, very possible, even probable, that we have these fallen angels who have set themselves up as gods and drawn worship after themselves. In fact, ultimately, what did Satan want Jesus to do? There are three temptations that uh, are related to us that Jesus endured in the wilderness, and they are related to us in Matthew 4 and in Luke 4. And the three temptations were... um, command that these stones become bread. Well, Jesus had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, and he was tempted to use his power in a self-serving way and in an effort to try to prove himself to the devil. And Jesus said, no, uh, the word of God is what I need to rely on, right? That's the bread of God is the word of God. This is not what he was going to do. He was unwilling to give in to that temptation. So then the devil took him to the highest point in Jerusalem, to the pinnacle of the temple, and said, throw yourself down. And then he quoted the scripture, for he shall give his angels charge concerning you, and they will bear you up in your, their hands lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus recognized that the, the, the devil was misquoting scripture and misapplying scripture, and the devil does that today. In fact, some of the worst people in the world are the people that know the Bible the best, but they abuse it, they misuse it, and they, they twist it to their own ends. And that's exactly what was happening here. Jesus said, no, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. That's not what we're going to do. And so finally, the devil just cut to the chase and said, well, here it is. Bow down and worship me, and I will give you all of this. It's mine. Everybody has come into my power, and I will give it all to you. You don't have to die on a cross. You don't have to go through all that suffering. You don't have to try to get their attention yourself. I'll just give it to you. All I want you to do is bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, no, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So the devil and his minions and his demons are always trying to supplant God, to usurp God, and to gain worship. And certainly this is what was going on in Egypt. So God presents this, uh, the, these ten plagues as a way of demonstrating his power over these uh, fraudulent gods. So number three, Egypt's gods were exposed as fraudulent because they were incapable of defending against the plagues. Yahweh was exalted and proven genuine. Um, If you look at the ten plagues, and we'll name them in a moment, each of them related to one or more of the gods in Egypt. And those gods should have responded to Pharaoh, who was also believed to be a god, and stopped the plague, but they could not do that. And that's because uh, God was demonstrating that they were fraudulent. So what were the ten plagues? Um, that's number three. First, the Nile was turned to blood. The Nile was believed to be the, the, the lifeblood of Egypt, so to speak. So God says, okay, I'm going to turn it into blood, and now you can't even drink out of it. And then there was the plague of frogs. There were frogs everywhere. Well, the Egyptians had a god with a frog's head, so they weren't even willing to kill the frogs. So they had these frogs plaguing their homes everywhere right? And then there were gnats after the frogs were put to death. And then there were flies. Um, Then there was the plague that killed all of the livestock of Egypt, but left the livestock of Israel in place. Then there were boils that broke out on all of the Egyptian. Then there was hail that came down and destroyed all their crops and killed every man and animal that was outside because the hail was so severe. There was actually fire mixed in with the hail. And then there were locusts 
This is a plague in the ancient world, and it is still to some degree a plague in certain parts of the country today. A locust uh, swarm will come in and absolutely decimate the crops that are there. These locusts came in. And then there was the plague of darkness. Everything became dark in Egypt. A person couldn't even see their hand in front of their face, and that lasted for three days. And then finally, the plague that brought about the Passover was the death of the firstborn, right? So the final plague, this is number four, required believing Israelites to trust and obey God to save their firstborn. Now, what did they need to do? As I said earlier, they needed to slaughter the lamb, take the blood with a branch of hyssop, and paint the doorposts and the lintel. What happened if uh, an Israelite said, well, you know, I believe in God. Do you believe in God? I believe in God. But I don't want to put blood on my door. That's nasty. I I don't really want to do that. God knows my heart. God knows my heart. Well, what would have happened is, since they failed to obey God, they didn't really believe to begin with, and the death angel would have taken their firstborn. You see, faith results in action, always, right? What did uh, James, the half-brother of Jesus, say? Faith without works is dead. If you say you believe but do nothing about it, friend, you don't really believe. You do what you really believe regardless of what you say. Now, ideally, you confess honestly what you believe or what you don't believe, right? Um, so uh, here's scripture for this. This is from Exodus eleven four through 5. And all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on his throne to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones, all the firstborn of the cattle as well. Moreover, uh, Exodus twelve seven. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat. And this is twelve thirteen. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will come upon you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Amen? When God sees the blood of the Lamb upon you, then death passes over you. The question is, have you put your faith in Jesus? Have you put your faith in his death and your place on the cross? Do you believe that he died for your sins? Do you believe that he rose from the dead? That is what is going to deliver you from your enemy. So number five, Passover uh, continues today as a memorial of what happened the night Israel was suddenly delivered from Egyptian slavery. It is called Passover, as I said earlier, because the death angel passed over the houses where the blood of the lamb had been applied to the lintel and doorposts. Um, here is the scripture for that. This is Exodus 12, 24 through 27. And you shall keep this event as an ordinance. Well, we keep an ordinance. The Lord's Supper is an ordinance. It's something God has ordered us to do, and we obey. The, the Jews to our day keep this as an ordinance for you and your children forever. When you enter the land which the Lord will give you, as he promised, you shall keep this right. And when your children say to you, what does this right mean to you? You shall say, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord because he passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our homes. And the people bowed low and worshiped. So that was when Passover was first established. God was already promising them that he was going to deliver them. The the thing was... This is very interesting. They had already seen nine plagues, and they'd seen Pharaoh reject uh, 
the, the plea to let the people go all nine of those times. So they had to trust that by doing this, they would not only escape death, temporal death, but they would also be delivered from this Egyptian slavery because Pharaoh had not sent them out yet. Well, and that is exactly what happened. Uh, the firstborn of every single person and every single uh, part of the livestock of Egypt died except for those who trusted God and obeyed and put the blood on the doorposts and the lintel of their homes. Um, this is from Exodus 12, 22 through 23. And none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning, for the Lord will pass through and strike the Egyptians. But when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. So, you know, I, I think if we had the, if, if some of these uh, Israelites had the attitude of some people today, you know, maybe some of them would go outside the door. Well, I just want to see what's going on, right? So you applied the blood to the doorpost and the lintel, but you want to go outside to see what's going on, and you're dead. We've got to obey the Lord. We've got to place the blood on the lintel and the doorposts, and we've got to obey the Lord. Um, because all of this is happening that night. This death is all around them. When he sees the blood, he will pass over. When God sees the blood on the lintel and doorposts of your house, then this eternal death will pass over you and pass by you. So I've already given away the conclusion of the message here, but Jesus is our Passover lamb, amen? So if you, you know, would love to participate in a Passover service, then ask one of our Jewish friends and, and go and participate. It's a, it's a wonderful service. In fact, a full Passover meal, it, it doesn't happen at the synagogue. It doesn't happen in church. It happens in home. A full Passover meal lasts three to four hours. It's very lengthy. Every part of it means something. I would even suggest that you try to find someone who is a Messianic Jew, someone who practices uh, Judaism but also believes that Jesus is Messiah, and you'll see the connection of each element of the Passover. It's fantastic. It's amazing, right? Uh, I have been tempted, and maybe one of these years I'll, I'll, uh, I'll be able to, to find a way to do this, to do some sort of a, an actual Passover here. I, 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 you know, I don't feel qualified to do that. I would want to get someone to come from uh, someplace. I think uh, the church Baruch Hashem has people that uh, you can book to come into your church and do that. But the most important thing for us as Christians is to realize that the Lord's Supper came from the Passover. What we're going to observe today came from the Passover. And it is representative of the reality that those of us who participate in the Supper have chosen to allow Jesus to die in our place on the cross. We believe that he died for us. We believe that he died as us. And we want to receive that. We want to receive his death, and we want to put our faith in his resurrection so that we too will be raised from the dead. The Passover lamb was and is symbolic of Christ, who is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In John 1.29, that's what the um, John the Baptist, uh, we believe he was Jesus' cousin. They were definitely related. Um, John the Baptist saw Jesus walking by and said, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In the Old Testament, it is clear from the prophets that the, the blood of bulls and goats did not take away the sin of the people. It simply uh, provided a, a, a time of grace until Jesus could come and actually take away our sins. Jesus' blood takes away the sins of human beings. 
So I want you to understand the, the reality that, uh, that we participate in. When we look at the Passover, we have this incredible symbol and this foreshadowing. But you and I need to realize that the reason we die is because of sin. We think there's a biological cause, and certainly there is. But it, at a certain point in your life, uh, your cells reduplicate, okay? And at a certain point in your life, they don't reduplicate as quickly, and so we start to die. That, that's a reality. However, you can receive the gift of eternal life in Christ if you choose to recognize that Jesus died for your sins. We need to realize that the reason for sin is death, right? Uh, in Ezekiel 18.4, Ezekiel said, Behold, he's speaking for God. He's the prophet. He's speaking in God's place. He said, Behold, all souls are mine, the soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son. The soul who sins will die. The first half of Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. What are wages? What's a wage? Yeah, it's, it's what you earn, right? Okay, you could, you could substitute the price for sin is death. But I like the wages of sin is death because it's like something you're working for all along. Everything we're doing is earning us death apart from Christ. Because even if you try to be a good person, if you're rejecting Jesus, you're living in unbelief. Therefore, everything that you're doing is fraudulent. Everything you're doing is earning you death. The wages of sin is death. That's for everyone. Well, Jesus died so that you may live. The other half of Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, says, but the gift of God, or we understand the word there to mean the free gift of God, is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. You earn death by what you do, but you can receive the gift of eternal life because of what Jesus did on the cross. To have eternal life, you need to receive it. You need to choose to receive it. If I offered you a gift of some sort, um, so we have the, the Easter egg hunt next Sunday, and the children are going to run about outside and, and collect those eggs. Well, what if we had a child that just didn't want to go out there and, and collect eggs? Well, you might try to bring a few eggs to the, the child. Maybe the child is discouraged or disappointed or mad or something like that. Children have all sorts of emotional reactions to uh, what goes on with them. But what if you brought them, and they didn't want to go hunt for eggs. What if you brought them eggs, and then no, I don't know. Okay? They're missing out, aren't they? They're missing out on something wonderful. But you know, people do this with Jesus all the time. Jesus offers them the gift of eternal life. Jesus died on the cross in our place and, and for us, and he rose from the dead so that he could conquer death. And there are people that just choose not to believe that, and they choose not to receive that gift of eternal life. You must choose to receive it. It is intentional, friend. You don't get saved because your parents are saved. You don't get saved because grandpa was a preacher. You don't get saved because you're a friend of the preacher. You don't get saved because you're a nice person. You get saved because you choose to put your own faith in Jesus. That's how you get saved. And we have to choose to receive this gift from Jesus. It's very intentional. Um, in order to do this, you've got to believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay the death penalty for your sins, and you need to believe, to believe that he rose from the dead and conquered death. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart you believe and you are made righteous, with the mouth you confess and so are saved. You know, I knew that this message was going to be very gospel-oriented. 
And I wondered how you would respond to it. Because most of you in this room have heard this before, perhaps many times before. Here's my question for you. Are you preaching it to those who have not? Is this just some old story for you? Or is this your lifeblood? Is this your reality? Is this what you're counting on? Is this what you're holding to? You see, this is all I want to do. I don't want to do anything else. I want to preach the gospel. This is the gospel. This is what will save you. Politics won't save you. The government won't save you. Going to church won't save you. Being a good person won't save you. But putting your faith in Jesus will save you. Jesus is the only one who has conquered sin and death. And you've got to believe that. Because if you walk out the back door and don't, I hold no hope for you. I have nothing that I can offer you. I have nothing more that I... I've preached many funerals. And... Um, these days, it's easy to get into hot water with people at a funeral by telling them that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But rather than make enemies, what I tell people is this. That's the only hope I can offer you because Jesus is the only one who has overcome death. Jesus is the only one who has risen from the dead. Nobody else has risen from the dead. Muhammad didn't rise from the dead. Buddha didn't rise from the dead. Name your favorite religious figure, your favorite political figure, your favorite historical figure. None of them rose from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead. And that is a historical fact. That is as much a historical fact as the, as the reality that Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon and transformed Rome from a republic into an empire. It's a historical fact. It changed the world. It is as much a historical fact as the reality that Alexander the Great conquered the known world and brought Hellenism to every corner of it. It is a historical fact. Jesus rose from the dead. And the only hope that I can offer you is that you put your faith in the word of God as it says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, only then will you be saved. If you're putting your hope in something else, in my opinion... You're shooting craps, okay? You're gambling. And from the perspective of the Word of God, you're going to lose. But it's up to you as to whether you want to, to gamble on that or not. So ultimately, you need to call on Jesus to save you from death and hell. You see, that, that's, that's where the rubber meets the road, so to speak, right? Okay? That's where it happens, you actually talk to Jesus. You actually call out to him and ask him to save you. You do something about this. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's Romans 10, 13. But that's repeated throughout scripture. That's everywhere. If you call on the name of Jesus, you confess, I'm a sinner. I know it. I'm sorry. Save me from my sin. I believe you died on the cross for me. I believe you rose from the dead, and I need you. Then Jesus will respond, amen? You really need this, friends. And if you think you have it, your friends need it. And it doesn't matter what their confession or their profession is as far as politics or whether they think they're an atheist or an agnostic or, uh, or some other religion. They need this gospel. Now, their response is not your responsibility. But may I say this to you? If you are a believer in Jesus, sharing with them is your responsibility. Wouldn't it be terrible if someone who had spent time with you 
went to hell, separated from God for eternity, eternal death. That's what we call hell. Because you refused to share with them, because you were too afraid, because you were too concerned about offending them. Listen, just don't be offensive. Be loving, be kind, and share, and love. That's all you got to do. Now you've discharged your responsibility, and then you continue to pray and allow the Holy Spirit to bring about conviction. So call on Jesus to save you. In so doing, when you do that, then you apply the blood of the lamb, the Passover lamb, to the doorposts and the lintel of your house, and the death angel passes over you. You know what Jesus said? Jesus said, Jesus said truly, truly, if anyone follows my word, he will never see death, or she will never. If anyone follows my word, they will never see death. And the people that were listening to him said, what are you talking about? You're saying that if anybody believes in you, they're not going to taste death? That's not what Jesus said. He said they'll never see death. Okay? Going through that process of death, for some people is more painful, for some people is less, less painful. There's a taste. But this perception being absorbed with death, that's not going to happen. I read this quote often uh, at funerals. This is from Dallas Willard, who passed away some years ago. And he was thinking of the scripture that I just quoted to you, which is John 8, 51, where Jesus said, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And he said this, Dallas Willard, joy cuts through everything. Our moment of passage from this world will be one of joy. Jesus teaches us that within his presence, we begin to live in heaven now. Those who keep my word will never experience death. There he's quoting it. There will be a continuity of life even when our bodies stop working. When we die, we might not realize it for a while. There will be a continuity of life now and forever. Amen? That's what I want. It's interesting. Uh, Miss Margie, you're here this morning. Um, you, uh, I, I, I saw a text from you. I think you accidentally sent me like a, a text. And the previous text that I had received from you was the text where you texted me that, that Vernon had passed away. And that he had passed away in his sleep at 3, I think you said 13 uh, a.m. Now, the reason that I bring that up, I think it's providential, because Vernon passed away in his sleep. That's what he wanted to do. I preached this. I, I spoke many times about eternal life. And I knew Vernon was always here. He was always here. Some of y'all make excuses because you got the sniffles. I mean, Vernon got himself here until he literally couldn't drive himself here anymore. And then he tuned in on YouTube and all these other things, right? Um, but he heard me quote this plenty of times. He passed away in his sleep. You know what I imagine happening there? Miss Marge, I, I imagine that he just kind of went to sleep, you know, and he'd been dealing with all of this stuff and, you know, could hardly, uh, you know, be what he wanted to be. He was just tired and whatever. And I imagine Vernon waking up and thinking, wow. I feel good. I feel like I got a lot of energy. Get up and walk around. He couldn't get up and walk around. Man, I can walk around. This is awesome. Not realize. Maybe he didn't realize he died right away. He's like, where am I? What's going on here? And now he's in the presence of the Lord. That's what I want, man. You know, the first funeral I attended was when I was seven years old. And I ran scared from death from that point on. It was a terrible experience for me. But see, death is a doorway if you know the one who said, I am the door to the sheep, right? I am the door to safety. You have no need to fear death 
if you have Jesus who promises eternal life.